Welcome to North Boston Korean United Methodist Church. Here we are a family that seeks to love others in the way that Jesus loves us and raise people up in his love. We are grateful to have you listen in. So regardless of who you are, you are always welcome here. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com. Wonderful to see everyone here today. It's a crazy, crazy time to be alive. Um, but we are all here together and it is such a blessing to see everyone here. Um, yeah, we, what is the, what is today? Today is the last Sunday of May. This is ridiculous. Um, everybody pray that our church opens up, okay? <laughs> uh, everybody pray for the UNC, okay? That they would lift. Um, but, you know, as, as your pastor, I'm working on getting us to a point where we can do something uh, about our situation in light of, you know, everybody being vaccinated and the weather getting nicer. So I'll get back to you um, to the best of my ability, to the best of Pastor Troy's ability, um, in accordance with our greater family. So yes, uh, as we have been, we are continuing to chug along through our sermon series. Some of our most difficult sermon series have continued to happen during this time of quarantine. And for that, I apologize. Um, but we're, con we're gonna continue through the book of Esther. Um, Esther uh, is, I believe it is right before the book of Job right after the book of Nehemiah. If you want to understand where approximately it is, it's a couple books before Psalms. So Esther is the, the story of a, um, of a young Jewish girl who becomes queen of Persia. We're going to be reading... We'll be reading Esther chapter 3, verses 12. Uh, actually, actually. Actually, pause. Okay, we're just going to read Esther 4. We're going to read Esther 4, okay? Um, I'll be reading Esther 4 aloud, but you guys can like also jump back and forth between Esther 3 and 4 with your eyeballs uh, throughout the sermon as well. We're reading God's word. So even though we're not together, standing together for God's holy and perfect word, let's hold all due reverence. This is the time of the sermon more than ever to pay attention. If you're eating, stop eating. If you're sleeping, get up. Uh, this is the word of the Lord. Esther chapter four. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young woman and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hatak, one of 
excuse me, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hatak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hatak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young woman will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you join me in praying? Abba, we are grateful for you. We're grateful for your love and your kindness. Abba. Help us to remember who we are. Lord, right now, I just pray for every single person in our ministry who are in worship right now or not. Lord, I pray that you would cover your spirit over their identity, Lord. That they would not question who they are in you any longer. Lord, I pray for a boldness that increases past our limitations to follow the calling that you have for us. Jesus, before we are anything else, we are yours. And God, I pray right now that that would be the greatest identity that anybody can possibly have. Abba, we just submit to you. We give you glory. Holy Spirit, would you inhabit all the spaces that our community is in? And would you take us to the next level with you? We are reverent before you. We love you and we worship you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, today's title is Esther's Calling. Esther's 
calling. I know what a timely time. What a timely, what a timely passage in, in light of, you know, so many people getting sent off to college, so many people coming out of college, you know, just the this time of year. But here we are. Esther's calling. Um, <laughs> the main idea is to rise to your occasion and answer God's calling. Rise to your occasion to answer God's call. I'm going to start off with a question. Have you ever had a crisis in identity? Have you ever been caught between what you are to one group and what you are to another? Have you ever been caught between being somebody in this world and being a Christian? Have you ever been caught before? Today we see ourselves a young woman who has been called to something greater than what she can <laughs> than what she can ever imagine for herself who didn't understand why she would get there it's okay Christian that <laughs> she would understand uh, a woman sorry excuse me a young woman who has been called past her station past her limitations a woman who is at a crossroads who makes a really bold decision. And so we're going to look at the circumstances of her decision and the measure of her decision. So let's first unpack the conflict. I didn't get to read with y'all uh, Esther chapter 3, but Esther chapter 3 is actually really important. Okay? So Esther chapter 3 is the social location uh, and the political situation and just the relational conflict that Mordecai and Esther, as a father-uncle-niece uncle, uncle duo, find themselves in. So the first thing is, as at the end of Esther chapter 2, where we last left off, uh, the last like three verses or so, it talks about how two eunuchs try to kill the king, but how Mordecai had heard about that at the king's gate, and how um, he had told Esther that, and Esther had told the king, and this plot didn't get to happen. There's no mention of Mordecai being honored for this. There's no mention of Mordecai being recognized for this. But Mordecai catches a plot to save the king. Okay? And then comes in this young man called Haman or Haman. Okay? And Haman, his thing was that he was hopped up on power. Man's was having the illest power trip of his whole entire life. So he was going wild. Um, the king had honored him. Uh, he was in under the king and he the king had honored him, but Haman had different plans than just obedience. Um, he was keen on getting glory for himself. And it's an interesting situation that we find ourselves in because Haman is an ambitious young man who is rising up the ranks, who has earned the king's favor, who is a bit, a bit on a power trip, but his intentions for life and his ambition 
honestly is not something that is dishonored in our society today, right? If you have ambition, um, if you have a goal, if you are driven, often your drive is something to be honored. You know, uh, another word for Heyman in today's society might be like a hustler, right? He is hustling to realize his dreams. Um, that's not something that's so crazy, but we, we see that under these actions is a heart that is more sinister than we think. And we see that because everybody's supposed to bow to Haman, but Mordecai chooses not to. Haman gets enraged by this. And he says, why isn't that guy bowing to me? Mordecai explains that it's not anything personal. It's because he's a Jew. And this, this one statement becomes the entire conflict of this book. Now, I, I want to dwell a little bit on Mordecai's character first before we move on into the actual location. Something is revealed about Mordecai's character that puts him completely at odds with Esther. Um, Mordecai was a visible Jew. What I mean by that is that Mordecai was the kind of man that wouldn't obey God, uh, wouldn't obey the law above God. So in Mordecai's life, it was his faith was visible because his priorities were visible. And in this situation and in this social location where the king is often also somebody you worship and not just follow, Mordecai's allegiance, his allegiance to God is highlighted here and honestly juxtaposed against Esther because Esther was willing to be completely assimilated into Persian culture. And so we see here that Mordecai, I would say like is more first generation, right? Um, in this diaspora culture where he is very much so still a Jew, primarily before he is um, a resident in Persia and he ascribes to his religion and also his ethnicity first before he ascribes to the ruling kingdom. Versus for Esther, who seems to be more, you know, I don't know if she's more 1.5 or if she's more second gen, but she's definitely a younger generation immigrant um, in this like forced immigration through exile. And she has this identity crisis uh, between Hadassah and Esther, where she is this Jewish girl who was raised to be a Jewish girl, who was raised to marry a godly man and live a pretty normal life. And also Esther, right? This this derivative of the name Ishtar, right? Goddess of love. And we see here her identity crisis really being juxtaposed against the man who raised her. Um, and he, he looks to Haman, right? He looks to Haman, he doesn't bow, he doesn't obey. And he says, hey, it's nothing personal. I'm just a Jew. Normally, people might be sympathetic to that, right? Um, but I think it, it shows the heart of Haman that he's not willing to take no for an answer. That the fact that people can be more obedient to their faith than to the decree to bow to him infuriates him to the point of asking Circes to kill them all off. Right. And we see here 
a parallel actually between Mordecai and Joseph. Although the circumstances are different, the parallel can still be maintained because Joseph, like Mordecai, finds an outpouring of anger against him. Although both are instruments of deliverance for God's people, right? Um, just for being faithful, they find themselves completely at an odd and at odds against this world. Um, and so Mordecai's act not to bow leads to Haman's hatred and he goes to Circe's or Ahasuerus, right? And he goes to Ahasuerus and he says a very, very, he words what he wants in a very, very interesting way. And this, this is where we see in Haman's anger, like his irrational anger at Mordecai's decision not to bow, coupled with the way that he goes about this decree, we really actually get to see the sinister heart of Haman. And it is also a chilling warning to us all. And what I mean by that is, so Haman goes to Hazarus or Circes and he says, he doesn't say, hey, the Jews don't bow. They don't, they don't bow when you ask them to bow because they're faith. And so I think they should all be killed off or punished or something. He says, there are a certain people who contaminate the empire of Persia and media and threaten the interests of the king. He doesn't say it like, oh, because of their faith, there are certain things they cannot do. He says they contaminate his kingdom and threaten the interests of the king. There are no specific allegations here. There are no specific allegations. Allegedly, the Jews are like this. Allegedly, the Jews are like nothing like that. Nothing specific. Just a collection of words. Some sprinkling of theoretical statements and ideas that give the impression that these people have, number one, wide influence. He says that they're everywhere. He says that, number two, that they're guilty of disobedience. And number three, deserve punishment. Without any mention of why. Uh, some commentators call this a rhetorical masterpiece because it really gets under the king's skin. In a specific way, we see that Circes is a man of boisterousness. He's a man that likes to display his power. Um, and Haman really gets under the king's skin in a way that is very interesting, right? Because it's all vague, but it strikes enough anger, fear, tension in the king's heart, enough for the king to say something that he normally wouldn't say. Because you see, the king likes to have dominion over not just his people, but his subordinates. And yet the king says, you have my signet, keep your money and do as you wish. He makes himself a puppet king, which means number one, that Haman had to know exactly what, what the king feared. 
And number two, had to manipulate the circumstances so that the king would bend under what Haman wanted. And so we see this rhetorical manipulation of the king that displays Haman's The, sin, the sinister nature of, of, of Haman's pride. And why I don't like to mark off Haman as some sort of bad person completely is because I think it's really important to consider the fact that Haman could be any of us. you know, to a boss. Maybe as you word an email, you know exactly what that boss likes to hear. You say things in a particular way so that maybe you haven't done anything or maybe you haven't done as much in your job over the course of quarantine because it's work from home. And you word yourself in such a way where you've done more, right? Or I don't know, maybe even in a relationship, you'll word things in a way so that your family, friend, significant other will capture exactly what you want them to hear. And it might feel like you're just communicating, like in a, in a nice way. It might sound as though, oh no, I'm just really specific about the way that I communicate so that they understand what I'm saying. But in another, in another way, there is a difference between excellent communication and truth. And we see here Haman's ability not to create nothing, something out of nothing, but to manipulate the material to get his way. And that's not, I, I want us to know here that what Haman, what the decree is is sinister. And clearly we see here that he is a villainous like person but ultimately the tools that he uses to carry out his plan is not so far off from what any of us might do maybe we would intuit about genocide but the i want to word this very carefully the motivations of haman because this isn't a fit of anger. I don't even think Haman is considering what it means to kill off everybody. He's just like, they don't respect me? You know? It's a fit of rage. It's premeditated, but not in the way that, not in the way that you'd expect. It really is all coming out of a, a sense of pride. And so in that sense, you, you see this unexpected relatability of this character. Um, and he makes Cersei's the puppet king. And so this decree comes out and this decree is on the 13th day of the first month. This decree to kill off every single person who is a Jew and plunder them. You it's a huge degree, decree, a huge decree. Okay. That is horrifying like legitimately the worst 
to kill off an entire ethnic group of people. Something that we shudder about. Something that we hope history wouldn't re repeat itself in. I was obsessed with Holocaust literature between second grade and eighth grade as somebody who was just really like, really, I had like this strong attachment to justice and I was obsessed with the Holocaust for my, the, like literally my whole childhood because I wanted to make sure that it would never happen again. It's like one of those things that is so horrifying, but you can't take your eyes off it in hopes that it would never happen again to anybody. It's like the worst thing that could ever happen that unfortunately happens all across the world. We're just not aware of it. Um, and this terrible decree happens, get this, on the day of the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover is a day where you commemorate where you commemorate the fact that God saved his people. It happens on the day of the Passover, a commemoration of the deliverance of Israel. And so we see this great irony and horror that leads Mordecai to weep in sackcloth and ashes. By the end of chapter three, Haman is not named to be just be the son of an Agagite, but he's named the enemy of the Jews. And that becomes an identification factor by the end of chapter three. Now, is this situation just something that you see and you read in a book? No, ironically, we see genocide happening today. Ironically, we see this ethnic group on the other side of this genocide. Not to bring up social justice issues, but just in case everybody wasn't aware, there is something very similar to this happening in Israel right now. Um, but the Israelites are not the ones being persecuted, it's the Palestinians. The reason why I like to point this out is because Jesus was a Palestinian Jew. I, 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 I really think, I really think that we have to sit on that a little bit. Jesus was a Palestinian Jew, born in Bethlehem. And at the time, that is, anyway, he's a, he's a Nazarite, right? Um, yes, uh, and, and, and that's happening in Israel right now, in Israel, in the conflict between Israel and Palestine. I'm not gonna say, oh, America should stand here or there. Honestly, I'm a pastor, not a politician. Um, I care about human rights, not policy, um, and so, or war policy, and so you, I'm not going to speak into anything that I do have, you know, I've learned about, you know, I was a political science law major. And so obviously I, I know enough about the comings and goings of the common law system we live in, but I'm not gonna comment on that. I bring this up not as a commentary on the, on the government or on any political um, position, but just, just as a human rights issue. Um, there are people that are being displaced. I was looking it up on Amnesty and it's like some 700 homes at the very least, um, I think in Gaza alone, uh, that have been completely obliterated. Palestinian homes. There are unlawful killings, excessive use of force, uh, to the point where nine-year-old kids are shot in the eye and there was nothing, there was no reason for it. Um, unfair trials and torture or ill treatment. There's also uh, no freedom of movement. This young 
uh, infant had to die because they couldn't make it in time for their uh, scheduled operation in Israel because the borders were closed. Arbitrary detention. Many, many people dying. Families being split apart. There's a lot happening right now in that part of the world. And the reason why I mention this as opposed to, you know, my six-year fixation, which was the Holocaust, is because I think there's something to be said about the fact that anybody could be on the wrong side of history at any given point. It's chilling. It's really chilling. And so we, we ought to not look at Haman as, oh, I would never do that because if you have ever manipulated your words before to get what you wanted, you're not doing something that's so far off. And it's, it's a humbling realization that tells us that we need the Lord. But this, this genocide, is, it, it, it is still happening. It is still happening. So many parts, Rwanda, like so many things are still happening right now, right now. Um, and, you know, unfair trials, unlawful killings, displacement, that's all the decree. This decree is saying rip them out of their homes, plunder them, plunder their homes and kill them unlawfully. The trial that Israel gets is only Haman's word. There's no opportunity for the Israelites to actually explain themselves. All they, all the King Xerxes had to go off of at the time that he gives Haman his signet ring is all Haman has to go off of, or all King Xerxes has to go off of is Haman's word. You might ask Jane, how is this possible? Like Mordecai just saved the king from dying. Like, how is this possible? The answer that I have for that is when such maniacal need for honor and respect is coupled with absolute po power, the result is oppression and injustice. I'm going to say that one more time. When such maniacal need for honor and res respect is coupled with absolute power, the result is oppression and injustice. This is so important. This is not the point of today's sermon. This name is going crazy. This is not the point of this sermon. But it's important to note that at the root of what Haman is doing, all it is is a need for power, honor and respect coupled with way too much power. That can happen in any relationship. That can happen in a, in a romantic relationship. That can happen in a parent-child relationship. That can happen in a friendship. You have to be careful. Search your heart and know your thoughts. Or ask the Lord in scripture. It says, search my heart and know my thoughts and lead me in the way everlasting. The reason why that psalmist prays that prayer is because it's not because the psalmist is dumber than you. It's because that is a human condition that we ought to be wary of, that exists in all of us. 
Now that is the conflict that is happening here. And then we see that Mordecai rips open his sackcloth. He rips open his clothes. He wears sackcloth and ashes. All of Israel is weeping. In the writing, the tension um, is kicked up a notch because the distinguished difference between Esther, the queen of Persia, who's wearing a silk and robes and is covered in grandeur, like literally surrounded in just majestic glory. And the situation of Israel, her whole people in sackcloth and ashes, the difference between her life and the rest of her people's life, it becomes even more heightened. And that tension, it's not written into the English, but in the Hebrew, it's heightened. So it's like the, the, it, the author ups the ant here. And um, she responds Hill, uh, in great distress to pain and anguish. Um, and she sends another set of clothing to Mordecai. She's like, Mordecai, what are you doing? You can't come in here anymore. And so she sends him a set of clothing to freaking put on. But he refuses. And she's like, all right, what is going on? Esther has no idea. What is going on? She sends her servant. Servant meets Mordecai in a public place. Mordecai leaves nothing unsaid. Explains exactly what happened to him and Haman. Explains exactly the edict. And it... it it expresses very, very, very fittingly for Esther, a sense of bewilderment. Um, she's bewildered. She has no idea what's going on, completely bewildered. And we also see, not that this is that important, but we also see this straightforward servant who faithfully tells her exactly what Mordecai said, as opposed to Haman, a manipulative sermon around the king. And so we see that, that God has put good people in her life. Um, and that she is still in contact with her uncle. Um, and Mordecai basically says, rise to the occasion. And she, she pushes back at first. You might wonder why, like it would have been easy for Esther. There's clearly nobody that the king loves as much as her. If y'all know anything about love, love is crazy. And people do crazy, we see that all the time. People do crazy things for love, right? I mean, if the king is really in love with her, what is there that he can't do for her, right? Um, but we see here that in the context of Persia, that this is a near suicide mission. We see Esther does not disobey Mordecai per se, but she, the first, for the first time in the book, she dares to question Mordecai's wisdom. She argues the impossibility of the situation. It, we see that Esther seems to be painfully explaining to her uncle that she might not be the solution that he thinks she is. And that's obviously because of the backdrop of her queenship, which is the deposed queen. Vashti was deposed for breaking the king's word. And so Esther as the queen is like, you're, you're expecting me to do the very thing that, you know, got the previous lady kicked out. 
And this guy can kill me. I know he's my husband, but he can kill me. I'm not supposed to go before him without his permission. But Esther does mention the possibility of the king making an exception by holding out his golden scepter. So there is this like small ray of hope, but it's clearly impossible for Esther. And as her uncle, he puts her in the most uncomfortable situation that anybody can possibly put their child in. Okay. I mean, we've all done, we've all been there before when our parents ask us unfavorable things and we're like, why the heck are you asking this of us? Um, but unlike, you know, some of the favors that were asked, um, Mordecai has every, you know, everybody's about to die and Esther is their only hope. Um, and so he asks her something that is so ridiculous for her. And she says, Hey, I don't know if I can do this. Mordecai's response to that is remarkable. He, to sum his response into three things, he says, her own life is in danger. The Jews, like number one, her own life is in danger because she is still a Jew. Even if she acts like she's not a Jew, even if she lives her whole life like a Persian queen, that doesn't change the fact that her name is Hadassah. Don't expect yourself to be spared. Number two, the Jews will be saved with or without her. God will deliver them, even if she doesn't rise up to the occasion. And then number three, her very purpose in life is at stake. And so we see here a theology that exists within Mordecai. And he, the author goes through great pains not to mention God here. Mordecai is clearly communicating to her without mentioning God for a reason. I don't know if you guys understand the difference between faithful parents and children who are born into faith who don't really share the same fire. Mordecai is clearly communicating in such a way that is palatable to Esther. He knows that Esther is not as visible of a Jew. He knows that Esther is trying her stinking best to assimilate. He knows that she is not necessarily identifying herself the way that he identifies her. But he speaks into that. And we see a theology of identity, a theology of faith in the face of conflict, and a theology of purpose. We see here, Mordecai is saying, did you forget who you are? For me, I think that has been like one of the greatest lessons of my, I'm in my mid twenties now, not in my early twenties anymore. I am in my mid twenties. Let's not dwell on this Jane. Um, but one lesson, uh, in my mid twenties is actually that no matter what I act like or seem like it can't change who I am. Um, I can't, I've done a lot of like connecting back to my roots these days. Um, and there's, there's something to be said about the fact that our identity goes past our facade. It goes past what we think we are or what we'd like to be. Um, our origins, our roots, those things are things in us that we can't necessarily change. Um, and we see here, 
Mordecai, not he's not even identifying her ethnically, although the edict is ethnic, but because it's an edict that goes past the boundaries of ethnicity to kill off an entire people based on their religion. This is this could be classified as religious persecution. And he is saying before you are a queen. Okay, you don't want to do Jewish customs, fine. But before you are a Persian queen, you are a daughter of the Most High. In the face of this religious persecution, Mordecai calls Esther out and says, don't forget who you are. The second thing is that Jews will be saved with or without her. That shows Mordecai's faith in God. That he's weeping and wailing. And, and, and without... When we cry out to God, when we're in a bad situation, we're like, God, deliver us. I think I mentioned this in the midst of Jonah. When it came to the people of Nineveh, the people of Nineveh asked for mercy, but asking for relief from the wrath of God does not translate to faith. You don't need faith to ask God to help you. Faith is an assurance of things hoped for, a confidence in things unseen. Asking for relief is not faith. But we see here that Mordecai's reason for weeping is acknowledging God and talking to him about his situation. That doesn't necessarily translate to doubt. This is really important to distinguish. Mordecai cries out to God in sackcloth and ashes because he's saying, God, look at us. But that does not mean that Mordecai is, one, blaming God for the edict, or two, thinking that God has left them. Even in the midst of exile, we see that Mordecai is a man who does not use his circumstances to blame God and call that God, and, and, and believe that God has left him. We see faith in Mordecai and trust in the vindication of God's authority over King Xerxes. This man is about to kill everybody, yet Mordecai still answers to God. You see, because the genocide is, the edict is not issued on the day of killing. If you really wanted to kill everybody off, wouldn't you ambush them? But it's, Decreed in advance. Why? To get a people to submit to the world. And yet, Mordecai answers only to the Lord. And he says, God's people will be delivered, even if it's not through you. Everybody else will live. But there's no guarantee that you will. So Mordecai first says, don't forget who you are. Mordecai secondly says, don't forget who you answer to. This is really important. This might be the rebuke that our entire generation needs to hear, especially as a first generation believer to a second generation believer. This is huge. This is huge, right? He says, don't forget who you are. 
You are born a daughter of the Most High. And he says, don't forget who you answer to. That guy, that all-powerful guy that's your husband, that you think you're sitting down next to because you're pretty enough, he's not the one that reigns over this situation. We will live, but do you want to be on the right side of history? This is literally what Mordecai is saying. It is something that is scary. He is giving the biggest reality check to Esther. She has been following the king, a broken woman who has been bending and assimilating to the culture around her, who might have lost sight of who she was. But Mordecai is giving her the reality check of a lifetime. He's saying, just because you think that this thing is on top, that his money, his power, his authority is on top, doesn't mean that's actually what it is. It's the fear of God that speaks through Mordecai's words. And then the third, out of the sense of identity, and I, identity and worship slash idolatry comes purpose. In light of her, who God is as the rightful ruler and who she is as his daughter, he says, who knows if you were appointed for such a time as this? And he reframes re her life's purpose under a new identity and a new order of power. Because the person she answers to is not money. It's not the safety of her family. It's not the continuity of her name. The thing she answers to is the power of God. And that reframes the purpose of her life. We see here in Esther's dilemma, the greatest call of a lifetime. That often, I don't mean to go here. If you're not sure of your purpose in life, you might want to start with what you identify yourself to be and who you answer to. Jane, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life. I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my time. My first question is, who are you? So-and-so's daughter, so-and-so's sister, so-and-so's friend, so-and-so's significant other or spouse. A businessman, a lawmaker, somebody, a helper for others. Who are you? What do you identify as? And number two, what do you answer to? Who do you find yourself obeying the most? Your parents? Your friends? Your pride? What do you answer to? Money? Success? Instagram, what do you answer to? 
your urges. And you're like, Jane, I don't know how to answer this question. Then I would kindly point you to what you spend most of your day doing. If you spend most of your day working, even when you get home and you have no boundaries with that. I would question, well, what is the motivation for most of the actions of your day? That would be a good litmus test to see why you live the way that you do and what you answer to. That's just a really good litmus test. Like, what do you spend the majority of your time doing? And who told you to do it? That might tell you what you identify as. So Mordecai sets her priorities straight in light of her number one identity and reframes the purpose of her whole life, which is not just to make it in life. It's not just to assimilate. It's not just to be this person's wife to the best of her ability and to please him Even your spouse can be your idol. Esther's primary identification was to be somebody's wife. God forbid my significant other bases their whole life off of being my husband. Not that that wouldn't be lovely. <laughs> Let me put it like this. If the person you love, if you really love the person that you love, you must succumb and submit under the fact that that person answers to somebody else before they answer to you. We are first children of God. Even if you get married or even if you are married, at most, 60 years, and then you will be somebody's bride for eternity. Don't get it, don't get it mixed. This is the van ride to the wedding banquet. This is not your best life. So don't get it twisted. Esther primarily identified as a wife. And that gave her her authority as queen. She lived to please one man. But God says, no, you are my child. And he redirects her purpose. From pleasing one person to saving a whole people. On our own, with our own skewed identities and our own skewed priorities, we will measure up to this much. But with God, he amplifies us and elevates us past even our abilities and our limitations. No lie, if somebody told me that I would be doing everything that I'm doing right now, I would 
have laughed in their face. If I didn't answer to God before I answered to my parents as their daughter, before I answered to my boyfriend at that time as his girlfriend, because we were taking appropriate steps to spend the rest of our lives together. If I answered to my dreams to make a living for them before I answered God, I would not be where I am right now. All I would be is a keg in the system making a lot of money and living only for my family. Now, I'm not saying that if you're in the workplace that that is unfaithful. You can be called to the workplace. But it's the heart. I hope you hear that. If you are currently in the workforce right now, more power to you. That's wonderful. For me as well, most likely in my life, I will also try to do ministry as I'm in the workplace because the world doesn't need any more pastors that can't relate to them. I think it's very wonderful and honorable that we are a part of the world without being in, that we are in the world without being of the world. But I am pointing out not what you do for a living, but why you do it. And not me, honestly, it's really Mordecai. Um, <laughs> that I am breaking down for you. We see here his faith in God. The deliverance will come else, somewhere else, but you will perish. She might die if she does it, but if she doesn't do it, she will die. And we see here, what does Esther end up doing? She doesn't all of a sudden divorce her husband. She doesn't all of a sudden break off from her whole social location to go be a Levite. Okay? She stays queen, y'all. I'm not telling you, I'm not ripping you out of where you are. Because all she needed, it's not what she was living as that was the problem, it was her focus. And so in this moment, her heart pivots and her purpose changes from pleasing one man to pleasing the Lord. And she commits. Esther's commitment is expressed by the phrase, if I perish, I perish. It's dramatic, but it's fitting. And she asks what? For jewels? For the favor of the king? She asks for a fast. For how many days? Three days and three nights. How many time, How many days was Jonah in the fish, y'all? Y'all, Jesus makes no mistakes. I had no idea. I had no idea. When God told me to preach Esther, I was like, I have not done this before. It's just crazy. Jesus makes no mistakes, y'all. How many times was the fast? Three days and three nights. How many time, How many days was Jesus in the grave? Three days and three nights. It's the sign of Jonah that connotes refocus, turning back to the Lord, a fulfillment of purpose. The night before the breakthrough in the morning. 
And so she enters into her valley of the shadow of death. Who knows the amount of fear she might have been in. She was probably terrified. The prophet Joel says something very similar to the king of Nineveh. Um, in Jonah, he says, Joel says, if the people fast, weep, and mourn, Joel says, who knows? He may turn and have pity or relent. Mordecai says, who knows? But that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Suggesting that Esther's royal position is the means by which the Lord might relent from sending calamity. Do you hear this? Do y'all hear this? So God, what God did to Jonah for the sake of Nineveh, is not so different. Oh, I'm going to cry. From what God does, does to Esther, pulling her out of her own thoughts, her own identity, her own opinion or assumptions about what she was created for and what her priorities were. He pulls her out and he with the words, who knows, maybe God will relent. And there's this introduction of the provision and the providence of God. There's no understanding of her thoughts. There's clearly an identity crisis. She has to make a decision about who she is, but she chooses to rise to her occasion and see God above even her reigning husband. Her decision to pivot, no matter how much anxiety it takes, no matter how, how impossible the mountain before her seems, her decision to choose God over her circumstances, over what she can see, over her fears, over her anxieties, to follow God is an opportunity for the purpose of God to be carried out through her. When you are in your valley and you are in your confusion and your identity is being rewritten, you're like, God, what was I created to do? And you move past your comfort, your security, and your fears, and your loyalties, and your priorities, and what you identify as, and who you answer to, to walk into what God has for you, that risk is an opportunity for God to do what he has created you to do all along. That valley, no matter how uncertain your next steps seem, that is the most certain, the most blessed walk, the most assured walk, that you will ever take more confident than any plan you can set out for you and your family or you and your future family. God is greater than your best plan. God is greater than your biggest priority. God is greater than your biggest purpose because he is your primary identity. How do we apply this? I mean, I've said a lot the mysterious and frustrating work of God. Whether we like it or not, we might 
feel caught in circumstances beyond our control. Life is full of seemingly insignificant events that in retrospect we recognize as changing the course of our whole entire lives. Every new day brings circumstances and decisions, and we don't know what, how one event will lead to the next. Only God does. Nothing is by chance. The author of Esther is connecting a, a bunch of seemingly coincidental events and revealing to us the providence of God. We see God vindicating his people. Esther was a broken woman, an orphan, who had no choice but to follow the king. She was humiliated. Her plans for her life did not matter. She's an instrument for the king's pleasures. Mordecai did what was honorable in the sight of the Lord and yet was being punished for his honor without getting any recognition. But we, we know how this story ends. God does not stop seeing you. Your circumstances, just because they take a turn for the worse, that does not mean that God has left you. Like I said, every moment of uncertainty is an opportunity to fix our eyes on God, to restructure our, our identity and allow our identity and our right priority to bring us purpose. Even if what we're doing is the same exact position, the way God's providence flows out of our lives will be far greater than what we can do for ourselves. We see a defining moment in Esther. And the way that you can apply this defining moment in your life is who will you identify with? Will it be your job, your family role, your ethnicity, your comfort, your loyalty, your security, your priorities, what will you choose to allow to dictate the majority of your actions? Or will you be God's child? But Jane, is the, you know, security and loyalty wrong? No, but if you're more loyal to these things than God, you know, you can be good to your parents, to your children, to your significant other, to your siblings, to your friends, and faithful in the position that you have, not because those things are good for you and you are loyal to those things themselves, but, you, but because you are loyal to God. Even the same exact action could have a completely different heart. And God is getting at the heart here. God is not pulling Esther out. God is using Esther. She might not have gotten there for the right reasons. We see the mercy of God in that. She might not have gotten there for the right reasons. She might have assimilated to Persian culture, not for the right reasons, because she wanted to do what she wanted to do. And yet, God gives her an opportunity. God is not blaming her for in her intentions before. In his love and mercy, he is calling her now. What will you choose? Perhaps like Esther, you have been brought to this moment in your life by circumstances over which you had no control, combined with flawed decisions you made along the way. 
Perhaps instead of living for God, you have so concealed your Christian faith that no one would even identify you as Christian. Then suddenly you find yourself facing calamity, either in the circumstances of your life with others or just in your own inner emotional world. Regardless of what you find yourself in, turn to the Lord. Rend your heart, not your garment. Fast, weep, mourn, return. His purposes are greater than yours. And who knows? Perhaps you have come into your present situation for such a time as this. Let's take a moment to pray. What do you identify as? Where are your priorities right now? What do you spend the most of your day doing, thinking about? Can we take this moment to hear the prophetic words of Mordecai and let that sink into our hearts? If you feel really called out, I am sorry. Just read over this verse again. Read over what Mordecai has to say. And let that sink into your life. Let that change you. In this moment, you can choose to be hardened to Mordecai's words, or you can choose to allow that, allow this to be a defining moment of your own. You might feel that your yes today is small, but it will lead to a string of yeses. What will you choose? Let's take this moment to come before God, our hearts open to him, soften to him, and let's allow him to identify us, to claim us as his own, to love us as his child, as he has claimed Esther, and as he loves her without judging her and calls her to her position that he has created her to do. Let's take this moment to pray. God, From wherever you're listening, we hope you are blessed by this week's message. For more information, check out our website at mbkumc.com.